You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Joseph's words were carefully calculated, proving effective in bringing these guys to a necessary confession of their sin and so to salvation. And you know what? This is exactly why we should never resist any harsh treatment that God may be dishing up in our own personal lives as well. And really, the reason why he would do that is simply because he hates sin. Have you ever had to rehearse a speech or maybe a presentation? Why did you have to do that? Was it to develop a better appreciation on the topic? Or was it instead to ensure that the right points were coming across to your audience? In today's message, Pastor Mike speaks about Joseph spoke carefully to his brothers. He did this to bring them to a point where they recognized and confessed their sin. Joseph wasn't angry because he knew that God used them to position him where God wanted. Now, here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 42 as he continues his message, Our Conscience and God. I remember what you said, you returned that I might Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Guess what? That's not true at all. They can hurt you. They can wound you. And we can carry the wounds of words to our graves. For example, undue criticism can cripple a person. It can arouse resentment. It can incite revenge and violence. Isn't that true? You know, man, think about some of our dysfunctional families. Think about the harsh ways that our mom and dad spoke to us, right? And uh, which wounds us deeply. And we carry the scars around for, with us for the rest of our lives. It, it, it forms our personalities. I mean, think about it. Think about the effect. You know, most of, our, most of the inconsistencies and frailties in our lives can be traced right back to mom and dad. It's true. Now, I'm not putting the blame on them. Remember, we're new creations in Christ, right? And that's a part of the old man. But they, you know, the way that our moms and dad treat us, and I'm so thankful that I had a good mom and dad who was such a blessing to me. But, you know, there were times when they made mistakes as well. And and I paid the consequences, unfortunately. And I'm sure, you know, my children would be able to say the same thing about me and and my wife because we're, we're not perfect. But these are things that we carry around with us for the rest of our lives. Isn't it true? Or is it just me? Can I get an amen? Okay. Listen. Words do hurt, and that's the point. They do work. 
which is why God uses, but he uses true words to unsettle us and awaken our conscience to the truths. Now, Joseph and his words were God's instruments to bring them around. And remember, this was a matter involving a great wrong. You know, I mean, think about it. They betrayed their brother. Uh, they told a lie to their father Jacob, how that he had been, you know, eaten by wolves or whatever. And remember, they took the uh, raiment, the coat of many colors, and they sprinkled it with blood and, you know, to convince their father Jacob that he had been killed by wild animals. And so this was a matter involving a great wrong. He was thrown into a pit. Then they betrayed him. He was sold into slavery. And so being a great wrong, it required, it involved exact, perceptive, and very careful handling. And, these, and, and also throw this into the mix. Well, who are we talking about here? These were hard men. These weren't some lightweights. These were extremely difficult men to reach, to turn around to bring them to repentance. You say, how hard? Well, remember back in Genesis chapter 34, the 10 brothers go out and they dismember and massacre an entire village. Remember the Shechemites, because of the king's son, whose name was Shechem, happened to defile or rape their sister, the 10 brothers' sister, Dinah. Just to kind of give you an idea of how hardened these guys were, they, they wiped out the entire population of males. Throw this into the mix. Remember Reuben in chapter 35 and verse 22, one of the 10 brothers dishonored his father by sleeping, having intercourse with Jacob's concubine. And then how about Judah, who had gone into his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking her a prostitute, and then impregnated her. Chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. And then all of the brothers together selling Joseph into slavery. Listen, these were guys you couldn't treat lightly. And so Joseph goes ahead and does all of what is recorded here for us to unsettle them, to unsettle them. And he deals with them extremely harshly. Now, I also got to mention that, you know, there are some writers and uh, some Christian authors commentators who think that Joseph's methods and the way that he treated his brothers were unfair. But remember this, Joseph was with God always. He was considered a prophet, and Joseph was never left to his own devices. It is absolutely true that Joseph was God's agent in this great work, awakening the consciences of his brothers. And, you know, also think about this. I mentioned this last time, but I didn't mention it in my opening statement. Uh, how important was it for God to bring around these 10 brothers? Well, think about it. These 10 brothers would soon become the heads and the leaders of the tribes of Israel. They would become a nation. And through that nation would ultimately come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So how important was it that God bring these guys around and back to himself? And that's why it was so very, very important to do that. And again, I mean, it could have happened a lot easier than it did, but this is who God was 
dealing with here. So Joseph was God's agent, awakening the consciences of his brothers, and his words were God's voice to them. Now, for further proof of this, notice in verse 6, Joseph saw and perceived everything that was going on as a fulfillment of his dreams, how that he would be preeminent over his brothers, and how that sometime in the future, and this is somewhat now, 17 years later, since he's been sold into slavery, and now has become the prime minister of Egypt. It's been some 17 years. And all of a sudden, it dawns on him, those dreams that he dreamt, how that he would be preeminent over his brothers, right? And then notice in verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all of the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth, even as that dream had depicted they would. And so Joseph was just reassured that everything that was going on was being ordered and directed by God. Do you see that? The brothers bowing down was a fulfillment of his dreams. You can read about that if you weren't here for that particular message. It's Genesis chapter 37. The acknowledgement then in verse 9, then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. So the acknowledgement, verse 9, a reminder of the fact that the hand of God was on everything that was playing out, that about everything that was going on. So Joseph was fully persuaded, and we should be as well, that he was under the control and the guidance of God. You know, F.B. Meyer, and often you hear me mention that, uh, just a great writer who wrote one of the most prolific uh, commentaries on Joseph and his life, F.B. Meyer in his commentary suggests that Joseph repeated the exact same scene that had taken place when his brothers took him and threw him into the pit. You say, how's that? Well, think about this. It was all, and all of this, everything that's being played out here and is recorded in verse 42 is very similar to what had taken place in Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph was thrown into the pit and then sold into slavery and then brought down to Egypt. It was all done to stir their conscience, to remind them of what they had done back in Genesis chapter 37. You say, how's that? Well, think about this. Joseph's brothers saw him coming towards them, back in Genesis chapter 37, in the envied coat, the coat of many colors, which represented that Joseph was dad, Jacob's favorite, and that he stood in line to inherit all of his father's wealth above his other brothers. Not not even considering that he wasn't the oldest. By custom, by culture, it was the oldest who stood in line to inherit uh, most of his father's wealth. But that wasn't the case uh, with uh, Joseph. And so Joseph's brothers, Genesis chapter 37, because of that, there was this... um, powerful sibling rivalry that existed between them, this irritation. So Joseph's brothers saw him coming towards them. Remember, uh, they had gone off to find food for their dad Jacob's flocks, and so they were going from one place to another uh, to feed the flocks, uh, to find pastures sufficient enough to feed the flocks, but they had been gone a while. And so Joseph, who stayed home with his dad, Jacob, is sent out by his father 
to see how that they were doing, out of concern, not to spy them out or to bring back a bad report of what they were doing. And these guys, they were bad guys. Let me tell you something. They were bad guys. And so Joseph's brothers saw him coming towards them in the envy coat, the coat of many colors, and they rushed at him. Chapter 37, if you remember this, accusing him of having come to spy out their corrupt behavior and report on them to their father. To squeal, if you will, would be the equivalent of this, on their bad behavior. Now that would explain, let's go back to chapter 42. Now that would explain why Joseph immediately accuses them of being spies. Isn't that what the brothers accused Joseph of doing? What'd you do, come out here to spy on us and then bring back the bad report to our dad, uh, Jacob? Do you see the similarities between the two, right? Verses 9 and 14. Now Joseph's response back in chapter 37 was to those accusations, hey guys, I'm just, you know, dad just sent me here and I'm just checking on your welfare. But how did the brothers respond? Well, notice in verses 10 and 11, the same exact way that Joseph responded in chapter 42. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's son. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Do you see the similarity between those two? Interesting. And then further, think about this. Joseph being cast into the pit parallels the brothers being cast into prison. Do you see the similarities between the two? Now, why, why is this? He's under the direction of God, the leading of God, the counsel of God, all of which is to awaken their conscience, to remind them of what they did so many years ago. Well, anyway, this approach to these brothers on Joseph's part would have a powerful impact upon their consciences. And notice shortly after their imprisonment, they confess their sin openly for the first time. It's been 17 years, guys, 17 years. But finally, in verse 21, we read, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when we pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Listen, Joseph's words were carefully calculated, proving effective in bringing these guys to a necessary confession of their sin and so to salvation. And you know what? This is exactly why we should never resist any harsh treatment that God may be dishing up in our own personal lives as well. And really, the reason why he would do that is simply because he hates sin. And the effect that sin would have upon the people whom he loves. God loves you so much that he's not going to allow you to continue to live in sin. Now, for example, let's bring this, let, let's find some personal applications of this. For example, this may happen as we study his word. Maybe this is happening right now to some of you as you sit in those seats, as the word of God is going across this pulpit. And as the word goes across this pulpit, it hits you hard. How many times after a service have you, some of you come and said, man, you know, has someone been talking to you about me? Man, I, I mean, I just got hit. It's like a brick wall just fell on me. And man, you know, Pastor, I'm so thankful for that. And you know what? I, I got to tell you something. I, I find that more people respond to the message when it's a hard message, when 
as far as they're concerned, it's a harsh message rather than one of those feel-good, you know, God loves you kind of messages. But that's a good thing. It shows me that, you know, you've come here this morning to actually receive of the Lord. That's a good thing. You know, when, when the word goes forward and God is dealing with you harshly and it just goes right over your head or you just blow it off and you walk out of here unaffected, that's not a good thing. But when you come and you say, you know, Mike, thanks, you know, really, I really appreciate that message. Man, God, you know, man, he, he really had my number this morning. And uh, man, I, you know, I've I got to tell you something. I've even forgot about that entrenched sin within my life. And I've, you know, I, I've never really, to be honest with you, gotten around to allow God to do the work that he wants to do within my life. And Pastor Mike, I really thank you for that message this morning. That's a good thing. And I got to tell you something. I get more responses, positive responses about the messages from people like that than those feel-good messages. Now, there's a place for that, and it is true. Everyone loves those messages. Come on. God loves you just the way that you are. And it's true. He does. And it's true also that God loves bad little boys and girls just as much as he does good little boys and girls. It is true. But that's exactly why he'll shake your cage, you know, sometimes to get your attention because of the fact that he loves you all that much. And so maybe this morning, as the word is going across this pulpit, you're being hit hard and your sin is exposed. And maybe I'm not even calling out one particular sin or area of sin within your life. But you know how God does that, right? And all of a sudden you're thinking about, oh man, you know, oh, you know, and God's got his hand and Man, he's like shaking you right now. Not you, buddy, but I'm just using you as an example. I should have went over to Alde, <laughs> my brother. And he's shaking you, and you know it, man. I'm not even dealing with that particular sin, but you know God has got his hand on your life right now. And he's calling us to repentance. And yes, the Bible contains great comfort and promise, but think about this. The comfort and promise are for those who confess their sin, obey God, and pursue after righteousness. We forget about that. We eliminate them from those feel-good messages. You know, these real popular teachers on the radio and on TV, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll just tell you, hey, you know, God is love, and it's true, God is love. God wants your life to be blessed and prosperous. Yes, God wants our lives to be blessed and, and, and prosperous. But they leave out the other part of the message that the comfort and promises are for those who confess their sin. There's no mention of sin. And those who obey God and pursue after consistently righteousness and holiness. So perhaps something I've said today is being used of God right now to bring to mind some unconfessed sin in your life. As I mentioned before, you may have even forgotten about it. But God isn't going to allow you to forget about it. He's not going to allow you to, to continue to tolerate it. Because you know what? It keeps popping up under certain circumstances. Isn't that true? You know, certain places that you go to or, you know, someone says something and all of a sudden you're, you're reminded of that sin or you're being tempted or you watch something on TV or whatever, and it keeps popping up under certain circumstances. You fill in the blank. But because it is unconfessed, think about it. It's untreated. And it's an offense before God. And so what does God do? He begins to probe us. And he's using words often 
to do it in a service exactly like this one. So God is speaking sharply, not diplomatically. There were those times and place for God speaking to us diplomatically. But man, now it's just like, you know, full-blown, speaking directly to you. He's being sharp with you. What do we need to do? We need to confess those entrenched sins. Why? What's at stake? Hey, your spiritual life and existence is at stake? I mean, there's a lot at stake. Think about this. If you haven't confessed your sin, if you haven't received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, your sin is the sin of Joseph's brothers. You say, how's that? Well, you have a brother, even as the ten brothers had Joseph. He is not afraid to call you a brother. We'll see that later on in one of our future studies. Uh, who has never been concerned for anything, in your case, but your good. And that's exactly what Joseph, remember, even in, when we begin to speak about Joseph, Joseph has sort of become a series, a mini-series within our series here in our studies in the book of Genesis. And in the beginning, when we are first introduced to Joseph, I had mentioned that in our series, uh, Joseph sort of becomes a type of Christ. There are these many types within the book of Genesis. And one of those types is Joseph is very much like Jesus Christ. So think about it. You have a brother. He is not afraid to call you a brother who has never been concerned for anything in your case but your good, even as Joseph was concerned about his brothers and their good. And what have you done to him, right? What have you done with Christ? You accused him of spying out your hidden sins to destroy you. That's why people don't want to retain God in their memory. You have hidden your sins from him. You have driven him from your life. We will not have this man to rule over us, was the cry of the people. Remember, when Pilate sought to release Jesus, the Jews cried out, I find no fault with this man, you know. And uh, we will not have this man to rule over us. That was their cry. It's the same cry that goes out today. You have driven him from your life as those who have gone before you in history. You know, figuratively speaking, you have reviled him. That is, if you haven't confessed your sin, if you haven't received him as your personal Lord and Savior, it could also be said of you, you have reviled him, you have spit upon him, and you have crucified him. So therefore, you must come to the place where you plead guilty concerning your brother Jesus. And yes, I know it's hard. I know it can be at times painful. But listen, once you do, you'll find him gracious. You'll find him forgiving. You'll find him accepting. You'll discover that he's gone before you, that he's died in your place, so that you might be saved for this life and for eternity. And guess what? All of your wants and your needs, those things that were lacking in your life first place, God to get your attention, will then begin to be met. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long. When something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, 
we remember the first times we walked in the door. And as we draw close to the end of days, it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcasts. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house.